0: Today's episode is brought to you by DEI Navigator from the diversity movement. Here's the deal. More than 80% of organizations have already taken action on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you're one of the people who's suddenly in charge of leading those DEI efforts, there's a good chance you're feeling overwhelmed, confused, and alone. That's why the diversity movement created DEI Navigator. This new monthly membership service is designed exclusively for small to medium-sized businesses who are committed to DEI action and results. It's everything you need all in one place. Access to proven business leaders and certified diversity executives, expert curated content, how-to guides, training, and a community of peers sharing their ideas and lessons learned. All at a fraction of the cost of hiring a full service DEI Consultancy. For more information, head on over to the slash AU. That's the slash AU. All right, let's get to the show.
1: I've been a big proponent of just check out your networks, like don't take anything for granted in your networks because you know, sometimes like I was making assumptions, I think we can make assumptions about who's in our network. And especially as I think because as black people, we typically are experienced with thinking like, and more of a, like, we don't have it. And so kind of trying to flip and say like, okay, what do we have? And maybe it's not first degree, maybe it's second degree or third degree.
0: Welcome to Equity Raise, leveling the landscape for diverse founders and their VCs. Each year, less than 3% of venture capital funding is invested in startups led by founders of color and women. I am your host, Naya Fela Powell, the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a black woman who has experienced the headwinds, ups, and the downs of fundraising, I'm excited to share these conversations with you. Today, we're joined by my inspiring friend, Shawnee Dow, founder and CEO of Possip, a platform that simplifies feedback between parents, schools, and districts. Later, we'll be joined by Jim Flout, one of the investors who loved Shawnee's vision for Possip and decided to help make it a reality. I met Shawnee back in 2018 at American Underground in Durham for the Black Founders Exchange. For those of you that don't know, Black Founders Exchange is hosted by American Underground and Google for Startups. And it's a curated program designed to move companies with a high growth model from initial product to a successful seed round. Shawnee definitely had a high growth scalable model, and it all stemmed from a problem she saw her husband having as an educator.
1: My husband was really stressed about a parent issue that had elevated and was creating a lot of stress for him his teachers because his parent was angry and she was calling and yelling at lots of people and so as he and i were debriefing this at dinner i was curious what her issue was and as he described it i was like oh i bet that was a small issue at some point you know like maybe her kid got a de- detention she thought he didn't deserve and so i asked him what system did she have to share that before it got to be so big and we went back and forth and realized that she didn't really have a way she was using the way she had which is to call or to email. And then I said, well, you know, she may not be delivering this feedback in the best way, but do you have any trend data to know if other parents feel that way? And so we went back and forth and again, realized like, no, there's no trend data because there's no system for collecting this information. And then he said, well, this makes my teachers jobs so hard. They work so hard and they only hear from parents when things are bad.
0: This conversation ultimately led to the development of POSIP, which was growing from 2018 to 2020, but really started to take off during the pandemic.
1: Communication is always top of mind for parents, and that's the case. That's the top trend for 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 family still. But one of the things we see is, especially with the pandemic, where they were like over their kid's shoulder watching them learn. They want they're more curious. What are you learning about? Like, what's your experience in school? Because now they've, they 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 spent a year really connected to what their kids were experiencing, and so they want more communication. That's that's you know normal. COVID safety protocols. What's interesting is um, we kind of look at what are the top five for students, for staff, for families, and for students, they had mental health on their top five list. Wow. And that was something that was unique to them. And part of why I think that's really powerful is because we now know and see nationwide it is being talked about as a trend, but they were talking about it, I think, at a higher rate and at a higher volume before others. And they were, you know, that's their way of saying this is the help we need. And so Mm -hmm. um, that was really powerful. Something else that's really powerful is across all three groups. Families, students, and staff, they all shared some concerns about student behavior, student discipline, and kind of how we make meaning of that is just, I mean, we saw very good examples of adults struggling to figure out how to re-socialize after this past year, whether it was the stories we heard about on airlines or even with schools. Similarly, students have really struggled. And so for teachers and staff to figure out how do we both care for you all, knowing that you've just been through this traumatic event and how do we create a safe space? And like, you know, so that's just something that that they're having to really wrestle with and think about. And that's something that's top of mind for family, students and staff.
0: Yeah, I love how innovative you are. You are with up and just POSIP as an organization with doing a lot of things to pull in community. Um, you have a lot of events and we were very fortunate to partner with you to be a PASA yeah. partner and providing some yeah. mindfulness. So I love the fact that you're doing that. And you are now in like over thousands of schools, right?
1: Close to now about 1500. Yeah. That is
0: like beyond exciting, like incredible. So tell us like, Shania, how did you know when it was time to move from side hustle to full-time founder? Cause you know, that taking the leap Is just such the big question and conundrum for so many founders. Like you don't want to be struggling and broke, but but you got to give you got to give your venture your focus. So how did you know when it was time?
1: It's so hard, yeah. And I, you know, I even now still sometimes I'll say like I probably should have hustled side hustled a little (laughs) longer, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, So when I had the idea for positive, the first thing I did is talk to my kids' school and said, "Hey, I've got this idea. Would you be down to pilot it?" And so started off with a super um, low tech kind of uh, system, which was I I had parents fill out forms if they were interested. Then I would I got a texting platform that cost $25 a month. And so I would send out that text with a link to a survey monkey. And then I would do all of the reports over the weekend. So on Friday I would send that out on Monday I would send the school report. So that was really uh February of twenty seventeen through uh May. That was kind of possible. Then I was the next push was like, okay, can you get people to pay for it? Can you get schools to pay for it? How many? So then over the summer, that was my big push. And then once I started to get some schools to sign up, then I, um, I needed to kind of create the technology behind it. So that's when I got the technology uh, developed. Then at the beginning of that summer, I told my current employer, I said, hey, I've got this idea. I really think there's some legs to it. Can I go more part time? So what I did is I scaled back to 80 percent. Mm. I knew that I was going to still be kind of giving 100 percent, but it gave me a lot more comfort knowing like, all right, if I need, you know, I can work on this and not feel guilt that worked really well for me because it also allowed me to still have the income I wanted to invest in the company, make some additional money, and also continue to test the idea. So then by the by, um, June of 2018, we had uh, 40 schools across six states. And really the benchmark I had met was someone who wasn't me had sold into an organization that I didn't know. And so to me, that was like, okay, <laughs> if someone else who's not me can sell this to someone I don't even know then that means that there's something besides just like my networks that that means this is viable. And that we were across six states gave me confidence to go full time. Now, the reason I said at the beginning, I might it may have been too soon is like like very quickly between and I made some decisions, some kind of staffing decisions that also had an impact on this. But very quickly between June and December, my personal bank account and the POSIT bank account went (laughs) (laughs) southwards. That also then that's created real. the urgency. Well, and part of why that happened is because, like, I had heard the thing, especially from West Coast investors, like, "Hey, people need to know you're serious. The way they know you're serious is you're working on it full time." So, these are people who, like, are telling you to invest. We need you to see you, see you working full time. I went full time, and that did not change their decision to invest. Mm-hmm. So, I think that that's just something to be very aware of. We've we've talked about this because I remember when we were all pitching here in American
0: Underground in 2018. We were hearing a lot of that. And it's interesting, one of the, a founder I I also interviewed said if he could do it all over again, he would not have quit his day job so quickly. And if he could offer that advice to other founders, he would kind of say the same. And so I think it's
1: such an important conversation to have, right? And I think the other thing that I really had and why I loved it is because when I had the dollars, I had more control over how to spend it so for example i would pay i, w- I hired people because i was like i'm working a full-time job part of my job is to like you know have this money i'm working this and then i can hire someone to help me get meetings i can hire someone so i had six part-time people working while i was uh working full-time wow. so i do think there's a lot of value to that now that said it did, it did force like i don't know if i would have been forced to like fundraise the way i did when it was like looking really tight in december of twenty. 20- 18. Um, And so that's the, that's the trade off. Like how do you keep that urgency and pressure that you do feel when it's like, okay, I'm, I'm at a make or break point while also like giving yourself the flexibility um, that you get from continuing to work a full-time job. So that, that advice and the advice that you have to have a co-founder are two things that I did not find to be true in the early days. I have a co-founder now and I'm so glad I do. But initially I also felt like it was holding me back. Like I felt like I was spending unnecessary mental energy looking for this like tech co-founder that was not what I actually needed. So anyway, but those were things that I kept hearing as kind of popular wisdom that you need to put your day job and you need to have a tech co-founder.
0: Let's take a quick break. While you know me as the host of the Equity Raise podcast, I'm also the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a founder and former corporate professional, I truly understand how stressed we are. With 72% of entrepreneurs suffering with mental health challenges, I knew that we needed to do something in creating a digital wellness platform that's addressing global burnout and the future of work and wellness. Utopia Spawn Global Wellness offers live and on-demand virtual classes, such as mindfulness, yoga, Pilates, cultural movement, wellness coaching, workshops, and retreats. You see, we're helping people show up as their healthiest and happiest selves daily. Also helping employers achieve their talent, retention, recruitment, and productivity goals. Our multicultural holistic approach to wellness celebrates mindful diversity, inclusion, and belonging. To learn how you can get started today, head on over to utopiasgw.com. Again, utopiasgw.com dot com. Now let's get back to the show. We also hear, you know, as founders that when you start fundraising, you don't want to wait too long. And so that's ideal, right? It's ideal if you can be super strategic about it and look at your runway and map it all out and say, I'm going to give myself, you know, nine months to a year to fundraise and I have enough runway to get me there and However, we know that that's not always the case. So when I listen to you, Shawnee, I hear you saying, "Like I knew I had to do something because <laughs> the accounts were going down, and I I had to do something." So it sounds like that wasn't
1: necessarily exactly your situation. Well, you know, the truth is though, I had spent a year trying to fundraise. I still was like following what I thought was the path, which was like you go out to the West Coast, you talk to the VCs, you do this, you do that, and so. And so then as that path seemed to like not be working, then I had to, it just put me into gear of like, okay, what are the other paths? What are the other paths? What are the other paths? Let me try these other paths. And so I think that's what it forced was me to try the other paths because, and like I said, that's part of why I had chosen to go full-time was because I had taught there by by June or July, I there was one investor who I had probably had two or three conversations with already and who I really thought was going to come in at like 500K and I remember the conversation where he basically was like, "Nope, we don't think there's enough market traction. Like, There's not a market. We don't we don't believe that this market is kind of like has has growth potential." And I just remember hanging up the phone and just like bawling because I was like, that was like what I thought. Like I just thought, you know, as we all do, I just thought it was mm-hmm. going to be easier and it's mm-hmm. just not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not. It's not. So tell us about kind of like you said you started the
0: traditional route, like you did the whole Go out to the Bay Area, try to have these conversations with investors. You did that for a year and probably some other things. So talk to us about what did work for you, your pivot in your fundraising journey
1: so when I was start, when I was fundraising, I was also talking to some folks in Nashville who I knew you know were more involved in the um, even the traditional kind of fundraising structure and so one of the people I talked to he had said. And he said, you know, don't waste your time out on the West Coast. You're going to end up getting all your money from Nashville. And I was kind of like, but that was, he was like one voice versus like the dozens or hundreds of others I was hearing from like the people who are more prominent talking about fundraising. So I think, you know, it, it just started to be like, okay. And I think I was like, I I don't, I don't know anything about like angel investors or personal, you know, like. VCs, i got, you know, based on my nonprofit fundraising, kind of the parallel I make is, you know, foundations have money, you know, it's their job to give away that money. And so that's often an easier path to go through, even though it's more painful, because you're writing a grant and you're doing all this stuff. Whereas from my experience, I teach for America, you do still raise a lot of money from individuals, but it's just harder to know and harder to find. And I think I had that same experience. And so I think I just had to take the risk to reach out to people who were in my community and networks who I just didn't know kind of if they did this type of thing, what it looked like. And so luckily um, there are a couple of things. One is, is Jim, Jim has this quote. He's also a mentor to my husband. And one of the things he said is, you know, a lot, mo- most people are, 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 are sheep, you know, like they want to follow the crowd. Luckily, Jim is one of those people who is like willing to be like, okay, no one else is invested. I'll be the first one. Do I believe in the person? Do I believe in the idea? Do I believe in the potential? I'm in. And so that's what he was for me in December of 2018, which was there wasn't anyone else. You know, he wasn't asking who's the lead or who else is involved or who else is at the table. He was just saying, like, OK, what's your vision? What do you think the opportunity is? And he was willing to say, I'm in before looking around the room and seeing who else was in. And I think that's very unique. And I, th- you know, I know part of this is thinking about the experience of Black women founders. I think that's what you need. You need people who aren't like looking around and seeing what's popular or what's safe and just saying, like, do I believe in you and what you've. Can do. And so that's luckily what he was. Very excited to have
0: Jim Flott with us today as the investor that has invested in Possip. And so Jim would like to just give you a moment to introduce yourself.
2: Uh, hello out there in podcast land. Uh, my name is Jim Flott. Uh, I'm very involved in education, sorts of things that uh, connected me with Shawnee and her husband, Randy, and all sorts of other people in the education reform mafia. We only use code names and burger phones <laughs> here in Nashville. Other things that have kind of popped up over the last 10 or 15 years is, uh, I like to call it um, the equivalent of, you know, in the 19th century, there's things called gentleman farming. Um, you know, somebody would own a farm and farm so they can say they were a farmer but they never actually did any farming or made any money. I, I look at that as like what I do on the investment side, which is like gentlemen <laughs> investing, although mama didn't raise any dumb kids. You know, I'm in it to make money, but um, really it's uh, finding, you know, some of this is finding seed venture funds that are a little more hands-on, a little more earthy, you know, things that are local to Nashville or other places where I have connects and finding super great people, who are kind of doing really cool stuff and, you know, need all sorts of different things, you know, whether it's like just, you know, I can open up my network. If there's anything on my side personally, I could do, which might be any element of the three T's time, treasure, or my very little talents.
0: So if I, if I'm hearing you correctly, Jim was your first investor.
2: Mm-hmm. I assume your first investor was like your capital one credit card overdraft.
1: Well, this is true. I was my first <laughs> investor. Randy was my first investor. Your dad,
2: yeah. yeah. It's the three F's and the two C's, you know, friends, family, fools, <laughs> and then credit card, right? You know, uh...
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's incredible, Jim, because you actually helped to create that really important framework and momentum for for a pass up, and, and Shawnee that led to her being history-making, the first Black woman in the whole state of Tennessee to raise over a million dollars. So that's really, really, like,
2: notable. And there's always gotta be a first. It's kind of sad that it took the 2021 for that to happen. Um, but, you know, that's a whole other podcast. I think the process, Shawnee you went through, that's sort of what almost every entrepreneur goes through. You know, the, the world of EC has changed. You know They're going to see you as like, okay, Shani, well-credentialed, pedigreed, experienced, all the sorts of things you'd want. It's like, this is great. If you find the one that kind of connects with you, that's the good news. The bad news is they're going to want you to fail fast. And they want to know, do I keep investing in you both my time and resources for three months or 36 months? And remember, only a small percentage of those hundred 100 bets are going to get those resources past three or six months. Versus when you go kind of local, it gives you time to discover what works, what, you know, both like from a leadership standpoint, an investment standpoint, the product, the market, and tweak. And then you get courage to your convictions, almost like where you are right now, Shani, which is, I mean, seriously, right now, the way you guys are going, you know, in the next zero to two to 24 months, I mean, you could go to a VC and kind of, name your terms because you got the confidence, the market and the revenue and, you know, all those sorts of things, you get to choose your own sharks. And, you know, back to uh, your point about, you know, Shawnee being the first black woman and entrepreneur in in Tennessee to raise over a million dollars, you know, you you look at this and think, well, this is exactly how it works for everybody else, Mm -hmm. right? You have networks of people that you've built over your career and have access to this. And you 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 might in the shine, like you said, you didn't even realize you had it. It's like it was there the whole time. Right. Like me, Tom, Will Ed, others. And once you kind of open that up, it's just like boom.
1: Well it's funny. Naya, you know, that that, that's what I whenever we've talked about, I've been a big proponent of just check out your networks. Like don't take anything for granted in your networks because you know sometimes like I was making assumptions. I think we can make assumptions about who's in our network. And especially as I think because as black people we typically are experienced with thinking like in more of a like we don't have it and so kind of trying to flip and say like okay what do we have and that, maybe it's not first degree maybe it's second degree or third right. degree but really taking the time to figure out what do we have and then the other thing um that Jim was saying that really resonates is you know VCs will tell you like and not only VCs like other investors I, will tell you what they want and so it's like i think the one thing i had in my favor is that i couldn't like i don't really have a good poker face and so they're saying well we are you going to fail fast and i'm like well no and that's even one of the VC said that they were like we're not we're, you're, you're not going to fail and so that was their thing they're like you're not going to fail and so it was just like we want someone to either like fail or to like go like you know to a billion dollars over you know so it was almost like that but but to be honest in that moment to be like well yeah no you're right i'm not <laughs> gonna fail and even there were times where i was kind of like wanted to like try some new things or make some transitions that probably were more in effort to like be attractive to VCs than they were for the good of the business. Mm -hmm. And investors would always be like, what are you doing that for? Like, is that for VCs? Don't do that. You know? And so I think part of the benefit of having, you know, investors like I have is like, you know, I kind of say they're in three categories, either they've like led or run businesses. So they're CEOs, they're uh, entrepreneurs themselves, or they're in the financial space. And so they have real experience and that exists in VCs too. And there are a lot of people who are working in VCs who have not run anything themselves. And so um, I think the benefit of, of having people like Jim who've run something and grown something and kind of see how things work is they can see where opportunities are, they can see the pace of change, and they've just got a lot of wisdom and perspective to to add. Um, and it helped me even when I start to like not be kind of, you know, lead how I want to lead, they can kind of come back and be the angel and say like, hey, this is really what you're trying to do. Like, remember that that's the path. Um, and so that's super helpful.
0: So I I love that. I mean, you both have shared so much um, in these last few minutes. And so one of the things I hear is that Jim is not just an investor, but he's also an advisor. And so he's someone that really can help you um, with Mm -hmm. in terms of guidance along the way to make the the best decisions. And so I just kind of want to go back to like timeline. So you and I met uh, in Durham in, in September of 2018. And if I hear you correctly, Jim, he was your first... I would say outside of immediate, like close friends and family, investor, and that was in December. That was three months later, and then to go forward, 2019, when I came along with a few other of our, you know, Google for Startups uh, uh, friends came to Nashville for Launch Tennessee, and you won a pitch competition. You had already raised over eight hundred thousand dollars, in just that short period of time. So even though it feels long, you know, it's exciting to kind of hear this timeline, right? So what was that first conversation like with Jim? And did you really, were you clear that you were like pitching him for investing or was it more of a conversation um, just kind of getting his buy-in? What was that like? Because these initial conversations are so stressful um, for founders that are just entering
1: into the fundraising journey. The first conversation was not like a direct Like, will you invest? I think it was more of like, here's what I'm working on. What are your thoughts? What are your ideas? Like, who's just kind of like giving wise counsel? And so I don't know if it was a second or third one, but it was a second or third conversation where I asked, you know, are you willing to invest or? You know, kind of at what amount. I do remember that whenever he said yes, it was such that I had to go and talk to the lawyers and be like, Okay, so like and we need to like get some contracts or get some terms, sheets, get something. Um that's a whole separate thing. I think I've told you the story, Naya, about the lawyers, but um that was even harder than I thought because it was hard to get legal counsel who, you know, were willing to like spend the time to just, you know walk you through. The process. Walking through, and 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 like like I'm saying, I'm, I'm paying. Like I'm planning to pay you, so um, that's all everything. But that's that's my recollection. And 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 for most of the investors, like when by the time like they had an ask, it wasn't my first time talking to them about the idea, so they had at least like heard of the idea, knew what the plan was. Yeah, but Jim, what's what are what's your recollection?
2: Yeah, I seem to recall a couple of lunches at the EC or thereabouts, and you had like a pitch deck. Yeah, I think you were just looking for. You know, a little bit of feedback on that. You know, sort of business model, business plan. What's the size of the market? You know, the things that are going to appeal to like your traditional VC at this point. I I, I seem recalls like you're, you're passionate about this. I mean, we know each other. Wow, you're you're doing this a little bit on the on the, not the side of your desk, but it was a little bit of nights and weekends. You're like, okay, I'm making a full commitment. And to me, like that's like a green flag. Okay, wow. Okay, she's going to put all of her non-Randy Sayla Joe at time into this, and then I also saw that I knew there was, a, there was something here, just from you know, your experience, my experience in, in the world of education, and, just, and it's like, okay, so there's that. Uh, the timing's right. It was like the technology is there for the, you, know, you get the enterprise scale so fast these days, and you don't have to be, this isn't like 10, 15 years ago where you got to hire a team of programmers and have a data center and all that stuff. Like, okay, so the, the enablers are there markets there. And also saw this as this isn't like your sexy Silicon Valley thing, which I'm glad you didn't go down that road. Cause that's sort of like they're looking for wow, how do I be like this huge thing? Doesn't have to make money. I just need to get a lot of eyeballs. It feels like the dot com back 20 years ago when I was in that world.
1: And it's like, ah, wow, this
2: isn't it. Um, this is you want to you want to have meaningful impact for you know schools, parents, communities. If you can get this, this is a real business one, that's really cool and 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 now you're in such a different position like when do i have to raise capital if i can if i can always have the option to make this thing break even man that is a great position to be in and also then when you're raising the next rounds of money it's going to be hey I, i've proven the product i've proven the market i got a team look what we did kind of bootstrappy with you know, with these yahoos from Nashville, like Willet and Jim, and Tom and my dad and credit cards and stuff. Look what we did. So that's like total credits, you know, VC street cred. And then um, you're now making that decision on your terms versus hat in hand. And I think that's a pretty powerful position because now you're looking for capital. It's like, hey, can we really blow this thing out? Let's really grow this thing. Or, hey, I, I, I want to make this in just to like, Cash flow positive, awesome business. It's not going to be like the sexy standhill road thing, but it's like sexy enough for Nashville. And anybody who thinks about this from a business mindset says like, oh, hell yeah, let's go do that. So I, I think that's a that's a big decision for entrepreneurs. And I think a lot of it depends on the entrepreneur's mindset. What market you're going after, how competitive it is. You know, how, you know, one thing I love about this business is that selling into schools and school districts and you know, 10 years ago, nobody would put a dime in venture capital going after this, the ed techs taken off and also everybody's understood. It's like, oh my gosh, that's recession-proof revenue. That gets, you know, from my other experience, gets me pretty excited about the business model aspect of it, which is kind of cool.
0: So Jim, like what I heard you say, you know, in terms of like your reasons for choosing to invest in Shawnee is that She had the pedigree. She had the background. But even what I hear you saying, like ed tech, like getting into that can be difficult. But she had the industry experience. So both she and her husband kind of have the roots in education. And so I hear you kind of answering that question in terms of what was it that made you invest in Shawnee. So you had a lot of confidence in her. So, Jim, what advice do you have for, like, fellow investors about, like, really leveling the playing field as it relates to under, underrepresented founders?
2: There's just a ton of capital out there. And there's people who wake up every day and aren't wearing a San Francisco Giants hat and a hoodie like I am right now. You're who, you know, kind of get a little more dressed up and think about this all day long. Remember, those guys are trying to deploy huge amounts of capital. You know, and it takes the same amount of effort for them to go write a $10 million check. Or a hundred million dollar check, or a billion dollar check, as it does write a twenty five thousand dollar check to an entrepreneur, right? Because you got to do the same, you know, business. You got to, you got to hear a pitch, you got to talk, you got to check them out, you got to do all that sort of stuff. You know, it's kind of a fixed cost for investment. That's a challenge, you know, when you're when you're in the startup mode, is to get those sources of attention. But I think for like individual, you know, people who are doing a little more angel and local investment is, you know, that 50000 fifty thousand dollar investment. Is can be transformative um, for an entrepreneur, but it's also not only the money, it's like what you bring with that in terms of advice and network. And then also, it then allows other people who don't want to be first to come in. It's like, hey, I've raised money, you know, this family person or whatever has has backed this. And it kind of gives the good housekeeping seal of approval locally to allow others to kind of come in. Cause a lot of people, like you said, Shawnee. Are good, but they don't want to be first. And this could be like your, your classmate from the GSB who is at a VC firm, but they're not going to put their career on the line to say, hey, here's the thing that you ought to invest in. But once somebody's in, then it gives people, you know, other people comfortable. And then there's this really funky thing that happens, which then it becomes FOMO, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and it gets a little bit of a buzz. And then, you know, then it kind of can take on the life of some. Now, let's be clear that's the fundraising side. There is no substitute for you know a clear leadership direction focus and then delivering on that and then adjusting accordingly. I mean, life is about sales. I mean, you have to be, you got to get the revenue in. And that's a huge proof point in any business model. So I think that was a huge, because it you know, proves like, hey, there's a market out there. And if you don't have revenue, it doesn't matter what else you do, you're dead. Um, so I think that that was some initial good points, and that and those are the sorts of things that a early stage, very modest investment can help out with. Let let the entrepreneur go after the revenue now, versus like spend all their time like pitch, 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 pitch.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess that's a good that's really a good segue too. Um, in terms of how much revenue did you have, Shawnee, when you started raising? Because there is like you know. How much revenue can you bring in when you're trying to do all of these things with limited resources? So it's kind of the the chicken or the egg. So where were you in your journey at that time? So 2018
1: was around 115,000 in good. revenue. 20 No, 2018 was around 115,000, which is mind you, half of that year I was I spent working a full time job. Right. So, right. So I think that speaks to kind of the trade offs of like there's some value to to kind of you know getting a proof point first before going full time. But then like I said, 2019 was pretty similar as well. Uh, I did start bringing on staff members, raising money, and then had customers, <laughs> you know, they have a saying and in, in kind of startup world, you know, you can do fundraising or sales or kind of serving your customers well, mm-hmm. but it's hard, it's hard to all do all three. three. Yep. And so I think that definitely, Uh, I think probably sales took the hit, which I think is right. Like, like now, like in retrospect, because we weren't, what we, and we actually made an intentional decision because we realized in March, I brought on um, my now co-founder and she's like very practical. And she's like, we're not going to be able to sell our way into what we need <laughs> in this year. Like, you know, I wasn't going to go from $115,000 in sales to a million dollars in sales in one year. So that's why raising that amount and focusing on fundraising made the most strategic sense for that. Now, then from there, the next year, we went up and grew about 5X to 600K in revenue. And then last year crossed a million dollars. And so, yeah, um, and then have kind of a trajectory now, but that that was, you know, it's painful to look at like the same kind of revenue year on year. But it year. shows the it shows that you you had some traction and you had some revenue. And it was a strategic decision that we had to make which is like can we really get yeah. If if we can't focus on all three, we want to keep our customers happy and make sure we're doing well by our customers and we're not going to be able to sell our way into where we need to be to staff and to grow the way we want to grow. So um but again, I think to the earlier point to know why we're raising that money and and you know why we're making that decision is super important. And I think sometimes when, when you don't know that you could, you know, it would lead to kind of a different set of decisions. Beautiful. So
0: I know we're winding down on time, so I'm going to give you a few rapid fire questions. Um, So Shawnee, who are some of the other VCs in addition to uh, Jim as a, as an investor doing great things in the space of investing in diverse founders and black
1: founders? So I'll just talk, talk about some, so Launch Tennessee, which is a statewide kind of investment fund. They're, they're one of our investors. It is a number of individuals like Jim, um, Gerald Risk, um, a number of folks who are associated with Asurian. Um, And I, I say that, to I think, because it speaks to probably also just the type of people that they have at Ashurian. There's a group called Walkstar Fund, which is women of color, um, and it's focused on investing in women of color. Um, of course, Google has been That's huge, right. Google for startups. They've been uh, both in terms of deployment of capital, but then also mentorship, There are others, but yeah, so those are some. And then there are lots of folks out in the space. I mean, I love what uh, Jewel Burks is doing um, and um, some of the other, a lot, a lot. And I think it makes sense. Again, people who've kind of gone through that journey themselves and and Mm -hmm. the ones who have been entrepreneurs themselves, I think that they have come up with some really great solutions in terms of funding and investment. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, One, one word of advice you would give to your younger founder self as it relates to fundraising.
1: I still think it's kind of like say, I still think, I think the most helpful thing to know for myself and to remember for myself is the same for fundraising as it is for sales, which is just get comfortable with lots of no's and you, you know, you just got to kind of keep getting up and and going after it because eventually the path emerges, you learn something from the no's anyway. And so it starts to emerge the path of like what the right path is. And so just being willing to take a lot of no's, um, it's just, I know it's just a part of the journey and it's, it's so, so important because otherwise you won't, You'll just stop because there's just as an entrepreneur, you know, you get so many no's, whether you're hiring or selling or fundraising, like you're going to get a lot of no's and just to know it's part of the process and there's benefit that comes on the other side of the no's.
0: Well, I remember calling you one day and having a question, an investor related question. And I was confused about something. You were like, well, I'm, I'm still confused about it. And I've raised. <laughs> and that was like so liberating. I was like, thank God. I don't have to feel like I know every single thing. It's just a whole nother language, a whole nother world. You're like, this stuff is still confusing. And I've raised. And so that was like wonderful to hear. So <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think even that, right? Like, don't feel like you have to be an expert in, in every area of fundraising um, to get started, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was one of my takeaways from that conversation that was really empowering.
2: You just you know, just one thing on on Shani's comment about like the advice you give her younger entrepreneur self. I mean, the the rejection, you know, feedback is a gift. And if you could like, and not every no is going to give this to you, but whether it's like you said, it's a hiring decision, a sales decision, a fundraising decision, demand or certainly politely ask for feedback and ask why, because you might have the market right, you might have the product sort of right, but those that feedback is like invaluable. That's like million dollar consulting projects that are, it's just, and they give it to you for free. It's awesome. So tell me why you didn't buy, tell me why you didn't invest. Great. You know, some of it might not be great advice, but you know, you'll, you'll, you'll start seeing pattern recognitions and, and that will improve the product and improve your culture it'll improve your pitch to investors and um, improve your decision-making. You know, it's like, Oh wow. Everybody's saying no, because I don't have revenue. It's like, well, I got to go bootstrap this thing and get some revenue and I'll be back. Or I'll find the next, you know, th- th- those are, that's just, you know, that is how you build a great whatever, constantly getting feedback, get that feedback loop going. That is so invaluable.
1: Yeah. I think it gets back to the numbers because you, like you said, you do start to recognize patterns, but you have to have a volume to like yeah. kind of have enough experiences. Yeah. Like I knew, like by the time, like by now, like, you know, whenever the firms who've said no, why? have they said, no, I know it's market size. Like that was their, and so I know that there's two options. One is like, I'm not communicating the market opportunity or market size well, or they're not a good fit because they don't see what well, they don't believe what we're saying. And so they don't really understand this structure. It could be either probably some combination of both. So, but yeah, but I think it's so helpful to have those kind of the numbers of exposures because you do start to recognize patterns and have enough information. And then on the hiring side, we realized that One of our learnings about startup was that a lot of people want to think that they're ready for a startup or want to work in a startup, but they don't. And so we had to get much more clear on the profile of person who we were like taking through our process and making sure early on they were having to be honest with themselves about whether or not they were going to. Because they like the idea. They like to play with the idea. But yeah. then when the reality came, they are like, oh, no, I like the safety of staying at this yeah. kind of institution. That's real. And so just knowing, knowing that stuff,
0: too, is super helpful. That's real. And that's a conversation I think we've had quite a bit, you know, just in terms of our Google for startups community, right? Like when you are hiring, it is important that they understand that startup world is very different than a structured corporate mm-hmm. world. And you have to be very agile. You have to lean in. You have to be flexible. It's not going to be set hours um, all the time if if much at all. So there's just a lot (laughs) there's just a lot of moving parts. Um so very, very real. And Jim, I love the comment about feedback as a gift. Um definitely work have worked in tech and that's one of the things that I'm a big believer of. And I think even for founders, we could use more clear feedback at times when we are getting no, you know, whether it's an application or something. But if there could be at least one sentence that could help when, you know, we're out here trying to make it happen um, you know, for any of the in investors that are listening, the feedback really is a gift for founders. It helps us to know what we need to work on. So thank you for saying that. So um, this has been truly a pleasure. So thank you both. I look forward to continuing conversations in different ways and continued success to you, Shawnee. And um, we'll be having our, our girl, Erica Plyby, on the podcast soon. So she's the second um, black African-American woman in the state of Tennessee to raise over a million dollars. And, so and she is are- in
1: healthcare. So we need more na- We need more of this Nashville community to invest in her. She's great. Yeah, It's so
0: inspiring. So
1: thank you both. Make it a utopian day and take care. All right. Thank you.
2: Thank you guys. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Shawnee Dow and Jim Flott. It's been amazing to witness her journey from the initial meeting we had at Black Founders Exchange to now working in over 1,500 schools. For more information on POSIP, of course, head on over to POSUP.com. Thank you for listening to the Equity Raise podcast from the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. If you like this show, please rate, review, and share with your networks. We want to spread the word that although VC funding goes to a small fraction of women and people of color, it does not have to be this way. So we'll continue these conversations to make a change. This podcast was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Naya Fela-Powell. Make it a utopian day.